We're in 1 John, and we're doing um, 1 John chapter 2, and it's verses uh, 3 to 17. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness, and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going, because the darkness has blinded them. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. Whoever does the will of God lives forever. Well, the psalmist writes, the commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. So let's just pray quickly before we read this passage. Father, thank you for your word that it gives light to the eyes. Help us to respond to your word as we hear it now, by walking in the light. For Jesus' sake, Amen. Well, it's been some years since, tragically, my mother was um, diagnosed with cancer. It was a very difficult time for the family because my father had only recently been in remission himself. However, wonderfully, thanks to the advances of modern medicine, my mother was operated on and there was apparent success. Now, I say apparent because she needed to have regular health checks to ensure that the cancer had indeed gone. And in those checks, expert doctors would examine her, and in doing so, they'd be able to continually confirm the remission of the cancer. And in many ways, that's the sort of purpose of John in his letter, as we read this passage from 1 John tonight. You see, John writes for us an essential spiritual health checklist. And it's, it's done in order that we can know and test if we are genuine believers. Now that's not because John wants to sort of scrutinise us as if we're under a treasury select committee that are looking for cracks. But it's rather the opposite. He actually wants to give Christians a deep confidence and assurance in their faith that they might know it's genuine. You've still got your Bible open, flip forward to chapter 5 and verse 13. You'll see there that John says, 
I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So we see John's purpose there. He's writing to give Christians an assurance of their relationship with God. But whilst John shows us how true believers can have assurance, we'll see that he also shows us why it is that those who aren't true Christians, but perhaps just have the trappings of faith, can't have any assurance. And so, just like with the expert doctors who are checking up on my mother, tonight we'll have the expert eye of God checking up on us spiritually. And so I I hope tonight that true believers will leave feeling encouraged. That we'll leave feeling more confident. But conversely, there may be some here who will leave perhaps realising that they're not true believers. But that's helpful too. Because you see, if the doctors examining my mother had been either incompetent or deceitful in their diagnosis, then she may not have lived. You see, a true diagnosis, whilst initially hard to bear, is far better and ultimately life-giving. Because just as discovering the truth in a medical context allows for remedial action, so discovering an effective spiritual cancer can then lead us to the same idea of a cure. But the cure here is in Jesus. I'm just noticing those balloons. Dan did say to me earlier they're heresy balloons and they'll drop if things aren't right. <laughs> is this my cue? <laughs> yes. No, no, it's fine. It was my joke. So, yeah, as I was saying, far better to be told of where we really are than to kind of live on in some kind of fantasy land about where we really are with God. Now, that said, as we look at our passage tonight, there will be a temptation to go one of two ways. We'll either perhaps sit slightly smug and consider, yeah, of course, I'm parcel John's test with flying colours. Well, if that's you, can I just say, try and think about what it is that we're called to as Christians, that we are to humbly work out our salvation, even with fear and trembling, rather than just proudly consider ourselves spiritually healthy. But on the other hand, there may be some who feel very scrutinised and will feel very introspective. And as a result, perhaps you'll begin to feel that there's a burden of doubt weighing on you that doesn't need to be there. Well, I hope that if that's you, that you'll see that there's great encouragement to be found in this passage. And what we really need to do, ideally, is just sit under God's word and just let it do its work in us tonight and hear the full message. As we do that, it it should become clear that those of us who are true believers will leave feeling encouraged, more confident, I hope, in our faith. Now, as you've looked in 1 John so far, you you will have seen that it's possible, as John teaches us, to know God, that that he's appeared in Jesus, in history, and he was heard and seen and touched. You'll also have seen that although God is a God of light and we are full of sin and darkness, that that it is nonetheless possible to be forgiven, and forgiven fully. Forgiven fairly and even freely because of the death of Jesus in our place. Because Jesus took the punishment we deserve for our sin. That's the amazing truth of the gospel. But given the enormity of that offer, 
we will rightly want to be sure that we've received it, that we've received full forgiveness. And as I said, in this letter of 1 John, there are tests that we're given which are designed to, not, to help Christians know if we truly have received that gospel so that we can be sure we know God. Well, one of, the pas- one of the tests that's not actually in our passage tonight is whether we believe the truth, whether we believe that Jesus is indeed God himself come down. But there's two other tests in our passage that we will see tonight. Tests or, or marks of true faith that John gives us. So we'll look at those and then we'll end with a final assurance. And the first uh, mark or test is this. God's people obey his commands. It's in verses 3 to 6. So look, look down. It, it says that we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. John's clear. He's saying that we show that we truly know God if we obey his word. But he doesn't stop there. He also puts it negatively. He says if we don't obey God's words, then by doing so, we show that we don't truly know him. So in verse 4, we read, whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. And he furthers his point by phrasing it slightly differently in verses 5 and 6. He says, if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. That's the other side of the test. And so this first test John lays out, this first true mark of a Christian, is whether they obey God's commands. You see, the mark, John is saying, of being one of God's people is not what we may say about our faith, not what we may even know about our faith or share with a non-Christian. But rather it's based on how we live, whether we live a Godward, God-obedient life. The true test of faith, John is saying, is not, surprisingly, whether we have great theological knowledge, powerful experiences of the Holy Spirit that we can talk about, even whether we regularly attend church. Now, none of these things, though they are important in their own way, none of these things, John is saying, are marks of true faith. No, the mark of true faith, John says, is much simpler. Do we obey God's word? So verse 4 says, there's no mileage in saying we know God if we don't obey his commands. No, God's people, John says, are those who obey his commands. Now, it's worth clearing a few things up at this point. John is not saying that we become Christians by obeying God's commands. If I wear a doctor's outfit to a fancy dress party, it doesn't make me a doctor. It could be seen as a mark of a doctor, the white coat, the stethoscope, but simply wearing those things wouldn't actually make me a doctor. I might wear those things if I was one, but it doesn't make me one. And in the same way, obeying God's commands doesn't make me a Christian. We've already seen in 1 John that All of us have sinned, and it's only because of Jesus' death in our place that we can be forgiven. So if we're not a Christian, if we're aware of that, then we we only become one by coming to Jesus for, for forgiveness. There's no earning our way to God, no moral ladder rungs to climb. It's only through the door of Christ that we get in. 
So obedience, John is saying, doesn't make us Christians. But being a Christian will make us want to obey God. And that is not because we need to keep obeying him in order to stay in his good books. But rather, and I think more emotionally, because of verse 5. So look down at verse 5. You see, it's a fool who says that Christianity is all about rules. It's not. It's about love being made complete. Love made complete through a relationship of God's initiative and our response. See, becoming a Christian is actually about connecting in an emotional way with the creator and sustainer of the universe in love. God shows his love to us in Jesus and in his promise to take us to heaven. And we show our love to him by living obedient lives in response. You see, John's already written a few verses back in chapter 1 of how if we walk in darkness but claim to be Christians, then we're just liars. Because Christians are to walk in the light. That said, however, John knows that that doesn't mean we'll do so perfectly. And so he also writes, if you look at chapter 1 verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So it's not that Christians no longer sin. We're still full of sin, but that the direction of the Christian life must be away from darkness and towards light. Of course we'll stumble. We'll stumble in many ways at various times. Sometimes even in really big ways. But ultimately, true believers will always return to and seek out that path of walking in the light of obeying God's commands. And that's so key to understand if we're to make it through the Christian life. To understand that dynamic. We mustn't despair completely when we sin. When we do, chapter 1 verse 9, we remember that we confess our sins and receive his forgiveness. But the warning signs should be on, however, if we keep walking in darkness and sin with no desire or intention of walking in the light. When I was at university in in Birmingham all those years ago, the secretary for evangelism in the Christian Union suddenly turned from his faith, got into a relationship with a non-Christian and then had a child with her. Well, I met with him about a year later and I'd really hoped that he would realise that he'd stumbled in a big way and he'd walked off the path but would want to return to walking with God, to walking in the light. But sadly, he made no such profession. And from what I know, continues today to still walk in darkness. So whilst he appeared to show signs of faith at university for a while, what became clear... And what is clear now is that he's not a Christian. And that's a warning to all of us. You see, by checking our lives constantly in the light of John's tests here, we can authenticate our faith. We can keep making it clear to ourselves that we are in him. Keep ourselves from falling into this darkness that John talks about. Now, it seems from verse 3 that John was writing his letter in the light of false teachers who were basically saying that there was just no need to obey God's commands, that we can live as we like and still be Christians. But John says, no, that's not true. Because if we're not bothered about obeying God, then we can't claim to be Christians. Now, sadly, many in the church today, in the wider church, 
and some even in significant positions of leadership, by living a life that is disobedient to God's commands, that are actually shown that they're not Christians at all. False teaching was around in John's day, and it's with us still. No, true Christians, John says, obey God's word. And notice, John's not talking about just obeying some moral law code that culture's inherited. So it's not the case that people who consider themselves moral or good can consider themselves Christians. No, it's only those who obey God's commands. So we need to ask ourselves, what is our attitude to the word of God? How do we view his word? Do we recognise that God is the rightful, loving ruler of our lives and that he exercises that rule through his word? C.T. Studd, who historically was a world-famous cricketer in his day, the sort of Stuart Broad of his time, was once found up in the middle of the night by his host for that evening, one F.B. Meyer. And Meyer, seeing light coming from under the bedroom door, knocked to check that all was okay. And on entering, he saw Stud leaning over the Bible under a dim light. And on being asked what he was doing, Stud uttered these words. Jesus said that if I love him, I will obey what he commands. So I'm reading through all his commands to see if there are any that I'm not obeying. Well, I wonder if that's our attitude to God's word. Or do we just see God's word as another possible opinion on issues we might face in life? Do we see the Bible simply as a a text to master? Or do we seek to be mastered by it? You see, Jesus perfectly understood God's commands and he perfectly obeyed them. And John writing here says in verse 6 that if we claim to have a faith, then we must live as Jesus did. We must walk his walk. Of course, as, as I've said earlier, we will fall short at times. But are we seeking to obey God and live in that direction, becoming more like Jesus? And John says that if we are, then we can be confident that God is at work in us and that our faith is genuine. That we truly do love him, are in him and know him. So if you're not sure tonight about whether you truly know God, if you lack assurance, then just ask yourself, are there big areas in my life that I'm holding back from him? Areas of my life where I say, I know God what you command, but I'm going to go my own way. There's lots of ways that might be the case. It could be in our use of money, treating it all as ours. Perhaps our attitude to work, cutting corners, not working diligently, perhaps ignoring God's commands about social behaviour, drunkenness, about sexual behaviour outside of heterosexual marriage, all sorts of ways. And John says we can't be sure that we do know God whilst we deliberately hold areas of our life back from him. We'll stumble, sure. But is there a settled, ongoing pattern of disobedience? See, verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. And that's the first test of true faith. The first mark of God's people. They obey his commands. Well, the second mark John gives us is this. 
God's people love each other. Look down at verse 7. Now the command to love one another is is an old command from the Old Testament. But when Jesus came, he made it a new commandment because he said, love one another as I have loved you. See, Jesus is the supreme example of love. He gave his life to die for those who rejected him. People like us. Jesus died for the unworthy, for the unlovely. And amazingly, John is saying that that very same love is seen in him and in you. It's quite a surprise. You see, we speak of the love of Christ, which is absolutely right. But John's saying here that this same supernatural love of Christ is now in us as we love each other. This Christ-like love between believers is the hallmark of this new age of light shining in. Even, as John says, the darkness is passing. And John says in verse 8 that he sees this. He sees this in those who he is writing to. And so we know he's writing to believers, wanting to encourage them that by showing this love, they are indeed true in their faith. And so we too are in the faith if we love in that way. We have the power by God's spirit to love each other in this new way. To shine God's light into this dark world through loving others as Jesus loves. It's not easy, of course, because we're all so different. And we all have our sin. So in some ways, it's even unnatural. But John is clear that we can begin to love in this way. It's not that we don't now love those outside God's family. That we no longer love our non-Christian friends or relatives. But it's that John singles out the uniqueness of the love that should characterise how believers are with one another. It's a distinctive mark of a true believer. And John goes on to reinforce this point both positively and negatively in verses 9 and 10. So, So look down. John's saying that if we don't show concern or interest in the lives of others, in the lives of other Christians, then we basically hate them. It's quite strong. He's not setting out some sort of neutral position, but he's drawing this contrast between love and hate. So we therefore need to be asking ourselves if we're showing this kind of love. Not perfectly, of course, because Christians should be about progress, not perfection. But are we showing it even in small ways? Do we seek the welfare of others in the church, serving where we can? Do you seek to pray for and support the missionaries that are supported and linked to the church here? Are you willing to be involved in serving as the church grows into its new building? If we can honestly say there are signs of love in that direction, then we can be encouraged. But if When we're honest with ourselves, all we see within is an indifference and a lack of care in ourselves for other believers. Then we may need to rethink where we truly are spiritually. See, during the height of the UK mining culture many years ago, pit ponies, as they were called then, were used to help pull the heavy loads of coal through the mines. It was a very heavy burden they bore, but made far worse by the fact that it was all done in darkness. And as a result, as time went by, the ponies began to go blind. So they were, in effect, blinded by the darkness. 
As a result, they were unable to then work outside of that darkness. Could literally no longer operate in the light. So there's a warning for us there. We need to make sure that we're walking in the light of showing Christ-like love to each other. In case we stumble into that darkness. John is saying that if we call ourselves Christians but have no love for fellow believers, then we're fooling ourselves and we're actually just living in darkness. As long as we keep our love from others, we will only see less and less and ultimately become blind. So we might begin to have distorted perspectives, making judgments unfairly about others. We'll hold prejudices about people's cultural backgrounds educational background, accent, perhaps treating people in church only according to the status we perceive they have in the world. And isn't that the sort of darkness we see in society? But wonderfully, if we are pursuing Christ-like love for others, then the true light that guides us down that very path begins to shine only brighter. When I was working for a church in Northampton some years ago, A few of us one day went for a walk along the mile-long disused Kelmarsh Railway Tunnel from the Victorian era. Now, at the half-mile point, as you can imagine, it was pitch black. We couldn't see anything. I don't know what we'd have done without our phone lights. But we stumbled about, hoping not to trip up on anything. But we could begin to make out a light at the end of the tunnel. And the more we walked towards it, the brighter the light shone. And the brighter it shone, the easier it became to walk along the path, avoiding obstacles and pitfalls below. John is saying here that we can't claim to be on that path of light out of the tunnel if we're still staying at the half-mile point in darkness. You see, hard though it may initially be, we need to seek after loving others, living in the light. And as we do so, the light of that way will become brighter. So perhaps we'll be able to look back and say, six months ago, I don't think I would have cared about that person that much or bothered to look out for them. But I can begin to see how God's changing me. They're so different to me. Back then, it was as if there was nothing for me to gain from that relationship, only things to give of myself. But now I actually want to serve them. You see, as we walk in this light, it shines ever brighter. And if we can say we are walking in that way of loving other believers, even if the light at the moment is only dim, we can then have confidence that we're on that right path. So these are the two tests John gives us tonight, as we've seen. His marks for true believers. One, that God's people obey his commands. And two, that God's people love each other. There are tests that John gives us that are designed to give Christians assurance of their faith. Yes, we are all full of sin and depending on Christ for forgiveness. But those depending on Christ will seek to bring their lives under the rule of Christ. Because sin forgiven leads to sin forsaken. So it may be slow progress with initially mixed motives... But are we seeking to obey God's commands and love other Christians? Are the signs there? Perhaps only in small ways. But are they there? 
If so, we can be encouraged. Or maybe we realise that we are actually stagnant, lifeless, maybe even regressing. You see, if we're totally comfortable in this world with all its sin, then there's nothing distinguishing us from it. And if that's the case, maybe we need to heed the words of a 19th century bishop, J.C. Ryle, who wrote these words, If your life is the same as that of a non-Christian, then you are a non-Christian. And so often a lack of assurance of faith will be present where there's a lack of obedience to God. But where green shoots are appearing, however small, we can be greatly encouraged. We can be sure that we are God's forgiven people. John writes his letter in a way that shows his confidence that his audience are Christians. And so he also gives them encouragements. As we close, he assures us that we enjoy gospel blessings. So look down at verses 12 to 14. Perhaps John knew that we would be feeling a bit battered by his tests. And so he writes this piece of encouragement. From his reference to dear children in chapter 2 verse 1. We know he uses that term in reference to the whole church. Partly because John was himself an elderly man when he wrote this. And whilst he writes in what seems as groups in this section, his categorising really just serves to show the comprehensiveness of God's church. But it draws from all walks and stages of life. And that the blessing he refers to are blessings for the whole church. The blessing that we have forgiveness of sin through Jesus That all our sins, even those that haunt us still, are forgiven forever. The blessing that we know God. That we know personally the creator of the universe. That we know him as father. I don't know if you have a claim to fame. Mine's quite weak um, at the moment. Maybe I'll meet someone more famous in the future. But when I was younger, I used to play tennis with Kate Maberly. Exactly. Well, back then, she was the up-and-coming Hollywood child star. She was in hit films, wait for it, like Secret Garden and Gulliver's Travels. Big, big films. (laughs) But now, as time's gone by and her career has moved on, it's sort of faded. The glory's gone. But John says that we have an intimate relationship of endless glory with the eternal unchanging father one that will never fade the father who cares for us protects and protects and provides for us a relationship that's entirely undeserved but the blessing that tells us we know God and we are secure verse 13 the blessing that we've overcome sin and Satan That God's word lives in us and by that word we have spiritual victory. Because as Christians, as we trust and obey God, Satan no longer has power over us. We're forgiven and set free to now live in God's way. Well, Christmas now seems, uh, especially from the weather today, a long time ago. But I wonder over the years what the best present is that you've ever received. For me, the present that really blew me away was getting an immense Marin mountain bike. In fact, it was so immense that I've still not used it. Partly because I'm worried about damaging it or it getting stolen. But whatever gift might have at one time got you really excited 
it will fade. But these wonderful spiritual gifts John talks about will still be shining bright on the day you die. Full forgiveness of sin. Eternally knowing God as Father. Experiencing victory over sin. You see, John wants us to be sure we know God. To experience how wonderful that assurance of knowing him can be. So do you know him tonight? Have you received those blessings from him? He offers peace beyond death. Security in an uncertain world. For those of us still unsure, why not turn to Christ? Why not give your life to him? Why not know that you know God? And for those Christians that are here tonight, as we see those marks of faith that John talked about, we can know that we truly know God. As ever though, the battle will be in our hearts, in our affections. And so John wants us to have our hearts directed towards God. He knows, verse 15, that where hearts are warm to the world, love for God will fade. Now the world here doesn't mean the creation as we see it all around us, but it means the system of human opposition to God. And those two things, God and the world, are opposed to each other. And until Jesus comes again, there is a great spiritual battle within believers between God and the world. It's not that we're to hate the world in its entirety, but we are to hate the evil system by which it operates. And what does that look like? Well, John touches on it. Look at verse 16. He talks about this system of lusts, fleshy lusts for endless pleasure, maybe sexual pleasure. Think of the celebrated culture of university life today. How so often in the lad culture, what's shameful is glorified. The lust of the eyes that leads to coveting. Wanting endless possessions. Or wanting perhaps to be someone else. Lusting over others through social media. Comparing our lives to one another. Wanting to look like him or her. It's only a look we may say sometimes. But when we look at that website or image. Often we're carried away. And where the eyes often look, the heart follows. And not the lust for pride also here. The pride that makes us, to, make, makes us want to be number one, to be the centre of our lives. Have you noticed how so much of culture is defined subtly by pride? By putting yourself at the centre. How the toxic celebrity culture is characterised by this endless fight for publicity. A celebrity feels their stock is waning, so they employ the image maintainers and they reimagine themselves, remarket themselves in the media, and the cycle begins again. That hollowness of lust for pride in this world, that desperation. No, all these things, John writes, come not from our good and our loving Father, but from the world. But you may say, I've got friends who are going after these things and they're having success in the world. They're getting ahead. They're having fun. Well, as we close, let me say that firstly, going after the world is a vicious cycle. Like drinking seawater, the world leaves people actually only thirstier 
than it did before. And yet at the same time, because of that very thirst, it draws them back to drink from the same well. And so it can never satisfy. But even more dangerous than that, gasping after the world is always accompanied by an abandonment of God. Jeremiah 2, verse 13 from the Old Testament reads, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. How foolish it would be to be in the desert and pour our bottled water into the sand to only then go and try and squeeze some out of a cactus. And that is what John says we do when we turn from God to the world. It's foolishness and spiritually dangerous. John Piper, the Christian author, has written these words of warning about that very thing. He said, the greatest enemy of Hunger for God is not the poison of evil, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. And as true believers, we must seek after God and not seek after the world. And that's because verse 17 says, for the world and its desires pass away. It's going to end. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. So a strong message, John has given us tonight a message of great warning, but I hope also a message of encouragement. God's people obey his commands, love each other, and as such experience wonderful gospel blessings, both now and in the life to come. As we see the marks of John's tests in our lives and in the lives of other Christians, then together we can be full of confidence and assurance that we know the living God. Let's close with a prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that as our maker, you know what is right and best for us. Forgive us for often wandering into darkness. Bring us into the light and help us to see your wisdom and to live in obedience to you in all of life, that we might know the deep satisfaction of your assured spiritual blessings forevermore. Amen.